Welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show about sports, art, and the space they share. My name is Abigail Smithson, and as always, I am your host. And today my guest is Kyle DePew. And Kyle is a longtime friend and former coworker of mine. When I lived in New York City, I worked at a company, I worked for a company called The Impossible Project. Uh, which then became Impossible and then became Polaroid Originals and is now just Polaroid. But when I worked there, it was the Impossible Project. And what was happening there was that they had bought, the company's founders had bought old Polaroid factories. Factories where Polaroid used to make film for the SX-70 camera, um, the 600 camera, and the Spectre camera, uh, and among other things that would happen at these factories. But Basically, Polaroid had stopped, ma- decided to stop making film for these particular cameras because it was no longer like economically viable. And so the founders of the Impossible Project purchased those factories and were attempting to remake the film. They could use the same machinery, but they could not use a lot of the same chemistry that Polaroid uh, could because Polaroid had been grandfathered into some environmental clauses in the Netherlands that as a new company, the Impossible Project had to find new ways to make this film. So um, the film, the pictures were different. The film was different. It's uh, you, you shouldn't shake it. I mean, I guess you never should have. Shaking a Polaroid picture, actually, not a good idea. Um, just in general, that's kind of a myth. But in, you definitely should not have. Um, do not shake Impossible film. And uh, also the the colors were just different and things like that. So it was for it was filmed for Polaroid cameras, vintage Polaroid cameras, but it was not Polaroid film, if that makes sense. So it was made by the Impossible Project. So Kyle and I worked there together, and then of course I went to graduate school, and Kyle ended up starting his own film and camera shop in Brooklyn called Brooklyn Film Camera, that specializes I mean they just they sell all types of film cameras but they also one of their special specialty areas is is instant film and selling cameras uh, that shoot with instant film and then also the film that goes with it so I wanted to have Kyle on for a while just to highlight uh, the amazing things that he's doing and to talk about photography and sort of what's changed since since we left impossible and things like that and um, this seemed like a good time. So thank you so much to Kyle for coming on. It was great to talk to an old friend. And I also just want to acknowledge that this is my 50th episode, uh, which for me is a huge milestone. When I first started this podcast, I struggled to do it as consistently as I wanted to. You know, my favorite podcasts come out once a week or a couple times a week, and I just, I was sort of overwhelmed in the beginning with all the sort of energy and work it took in just to getting sort of one episode out a month and so that's why there's no real like date that this started being consistent and so I think it's really important for me to acknowledge um, the 50 episode mark is a big deal and I know that there's such a long way to go but it feels good to have uh, yeah just just done it 50 times and and uh, reached out to near to that amount of people to, to include in this space. And I'm so grateful for everyone that, that has said yes. And it just means the world to, to get to share, share this platform with, with other people that I've come to care about quite a bit. So thank you all for listening during that. And then 
I also just want to acknowledge that while I do love the podcast medium and podcasts are some of my favorite, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and all of that. I also struggle sometimes with squeezing in every sort of opinion or thought or um, event that's occurred into every episode um, regarding regarding the news. And, you know, that's, that is also about sports news. It's about basketball news. It's about current events. It's about our social uprising. It's about everything. It's just I sometimes feel like I get swept up in conversations and then I don't say explicitly maybe what I think. And maybe I, I should, you know, that's something going forward that I'd like to, you know, be more direct about my own my own opinions and my own thoughts and and not have there be any sort of misunderstandings about what I think. But I also know that just like any other piece of art, each podcast episode can't encompass all of my opinions and all of my thoughts about one thing, you know, and I think the news moves so quickly and it's really hard to keep up and say everything in the right way at the exact right moment and I am trying to do my best even though this podcast is not a news podcast it's not even close I still I want to be very clear on on where I stand on on issues and I hope that that comes through in the conversations but but moving forward I'd also like to to make sure that that I, I really own my my own opinions and and share them as much as possible. So that's sort of what I'm I'm hoping to do more of um, in coming episodes and and create a space for other people to do the same unapologetically. So thank you so much for listening and being here for however many episodes you've been here for. I'm I feel so grateful to, uh, yeah, have this space and and get to include you in it. So thank you for listening. So Kyle, I'm so excited to have you on today because I think that a lot of the times that I've, you know, discussed my own work or my own life on the podcast, it's all been in relationship to like my time in graduate school and mm. um, sort of what's happened since then, especially because that's when I kind of rediscovered my, my like, well, yeah, I mean, just like my love for basketball and um and like this ability to to interact with it through art, so that's like I focus on that a lot. So it's so nice to have someone on the podcast who is like, you know, a very old friend and mm-hmm. um, was around uh, during my New York days. Um, our New York days, yours continue to go on, um, and uh, yeah, you know, our time at the Impossible Project was. Uh, yeah, I mean, somewhat shaped a lot of how I feel about photography to a certain extent um, and a pretty magical time. So I'm so glad you're here to discuss your work and all that's going on in the world um, as much as we can. Yeah, I'm a transmission from another Abbey reality. (laughs) (laughs) That's your only use. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah, And I'm really happy to be here. So uh, we met at the Impossible Project in Soho on the fifth floor, um, 425 yeah. Broadway, I think, um, with some other amazing people and and worked there together for maybe two or three years. And yeah, went through a lot of like <laughs> ups and downs, um, you know, just the excitement that that was involved in being part of this company that was making new instant film for Polaroid cameras yeah. and also just like 
the the drama and the the, the sort of um, yeah I mean just like everything else that comes along with that uh, but mm-hmm. it was kind of a magical time um, I think for me uh, mostly involving the record player there and like the nighttime views <laughs> um and like my deep deep love for instant film so i mean i i used to shoot so much more of it but anyway so since then you have started your own company and store that uh sells um polaroid original film right is that right am i using the right terminology there yeah yeah although they've rebranded they're no longer polaroid originals they're just Polaroid. Wow, so, spicy. Yeah. Crazy? <laughs> so, yeah, just please um, talk a little bit about, like, you know, starting, like, your time in Impossible, leaving Impossible, and then starting your own company that, like, essentially was doing the same thing that Impossible was doing, but just in, like, a different way, and, like, what's happened with Brooklyn Film Camera. Sure, yeah. So, basically... Yeah, the, I guess the abbreviated timeline would be that um, started working for the Impossible Project in 2011, uh, same year that you did. And um, were you early 2012? When did you come on board? I think I was like late 2011. I think we got hired like okay, a few yeah, weeks we're apart. Like yeah, time. we're like little yeah, okay, like twins. Yeah, that's my recollection too. Um, so yeah, yeah, late 2011. Um, worked there until 2014. Uh, the very last thing I did for the Impossible Project. So actually, I, I had left just to pursue some other things in my life I wanted to focus on um, that actually didn't really involve Brooklyn Film Camera. That was in my head as as a concept and something I wanted to realize at some point. Yeah. Um, but I left just to to sort of refocus my energies a little bit, my attention. And then I got a phone call from um, Wendy Strauss, <laughs> our, our friend Wendy. Yes. Who had, um, I forget exactly the role she was in at that point, but she was kind of masterminding along with uh, another woman at the company, uh, Casey Baker, um, this U.S. tour. So they'd come out with this uh, piece of hardware called the Instant Lab, uh, which has now been rebooted uh, as the Polaroid Lab. Um, which is significantly better than what the Instant Lab was, but they both do the same thing. So this is a, a piece of hardware made for turning photos on your phone into Polaroids. And it's kind of neat. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's also kind of hokey, you know, it's a little kind of straddles these worlds. Um, but in any case, they needed someone to pilot this five-month U.S. road trip um, to promote (laughs) promote the instant lab and so they called they they called me up like i think it was two months after i left or something we're like hey i know this is weird and you just left but you know would you at all be interested in in doing this thing and i was like yeah i think so you know so i came (laughs) back came back into the store had a meeting with, with them and um decided to do it and then there's a there's a funny nugget of information within that story, which is that it was supposed to be me and this guy from Germany. So at the time, Impossible's headquarters were in Berlin, and it was me and this guy from Berlin. A very thick German accent, I forget his name. But um, we had a couple Skype calls, and yeah, it was like greenlit. It was like, okay, it's going to be you guys. You know, get to know each other. Let's do this thing. And two weeks before our start date, I get a call, and they said, Hey, actually, he can't do it. Do you know anyone who can do this with you? <laughs> and I was like, "What the fuck?" Right. So I said, "I said, you know, 
my brother might do it. Like he's kind of stuck in the middle of nowhere, Ohio at the time he was living with, with his, uh, his partner and their relationship was really on the rocks. And, you know, she was in grad school and he was just, he was stuck in Bowling Green, Ohio, which is maybe the most boring place I've ever spent time. And, uh, he was just, you know, it was not a good situation. So I was sure. like, I think my brother might be down for this. So I called Mitch and I was like, Hey man, um, you want to make like, you know, a pretty good amount of money in like five months and like travel the U S together and, and have like, like a yes. brother dream come true. You yeah, know? Like... yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he, he accepted, um, which was awesome. And, um, I did this, you know, I did this five month road trip with my brother, which was great. And uh, it was it was very exhausting, to be honest. I mean, it was a seven day a week thing. And, and you were we going were... to different festivals, like just like setting up shop in yeah. all these different locations um, and just yeah. like, pushing this product. Yeah, it was primarily um, camera shops that we would stop at. But um, yeah, we went to Coachella okay. and um, what the heck else did we Coachella was the only music festival, but there okay. was like some 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 events we went to and things like that. Um we were actually at this party with Lindsay Lohan for some reason at Coachella. It was very strange. Um, but yeah, so we did that. And that, that's an important part of the Brooklyn Film Camera story, actually, because that was what gave me the capital to start Brooklyn Film Camera. Right. Um, so basically, I came back from this five-month tour. Um, I'm happy to be transparent about money because I think people often don't talk about money. And it's an interesting thing to discuss. But sure. so the contract was 5000 a month. So basically I came back and I had 25,000 in the bank, um, plus a little extra money that I've been saving. And, um, another perk of this tour is that we had company credit cards. And so there was, you know, basically zero cost of living food was paid for. And we were staying in hotels. I was subletting my apartment in, in, uh, Brooklyn. So yeah, I just netted 25,000 bucks. <laughs> it was like, all right, you know, I got back. Right. And I said, well, okay, here's, here's an opportunity. Um, and yeah, and then thus Brooklyn Film Camera was born. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, Impossible road trip. Yeah, shout out to the road trip. <laughs> awesome. So, and then um, Brooklyn Film Camera has is has like a physical location in Bushwick um, where you repair. Yes like um, older Polaroid cameras like the SX-70, um, the 600s, all that. You also sell those cameras in person and also online, as well as the film for those cameras and some other products that go along with both those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we sell um, vintage film cameras of all sorts. So not not just Polaroid, but right, right, right. we specialize yes. in Polaroid. Um, so we have a technician um, on site, Julian Piccioneri, who was the lead technician um, at the Impossible Project for many years, I think five, um, maybe longer, but I think I think it was five. And uh, he remains our technician. He is currently, as of recording this podcast, um, still in France. So he actually got stuck there because of COVID. Um, he's on the way back. He should be back soon, which we're very eager to get him back. Sure. Um, and yeah, so we specialize in Polaroid. We do all that work in-house. Um, they get full CLAs, which are cleaning, lubrication, and adjustments. Um, all of our Polaroids come with a full one-year warranty. Um, but we're not limited to that. So we do a whole bunch of other cameras as well. Um, and yeah, we have a small apparel line. We sell accessories. We sell common and rare films. Um, we've done some workshops. 
we there's sort of many facets of Brooklyn Film Camera these days. We we're we're for hire for events, so we do we get hired to shoot a lot of weddings, corporate events. Uh, we have a Polaroid photo booth. Um, we were the artist residence at the Whitney Museum of Art. Yes, this past year. yes, that's so amazing. Um, it was so cool seeing the pictures of the eight by ten camera set up in the lobby of the yeah. Whitney. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. So for anyone listening who's into eight by ten, by the way. Um, since our residency is over, we are now legally obligated to, uh, you know, do other things with it. So if you want to hire us to shoot an event, uh, give us a ring. We're also renting the gear. So should you want to rent the gear, give us a call. We can arrange it. Yeah. Seriously, anyone who loves, uh, I mean, I'm sure, like, I feel like it would be hard to be deep into shooting instant film and not know about Brooklyn Film Camera. Is that Right. Do you think? I mean, I feel like there's not a lot of yeah, places I mean, that like yeah. sell the way you guys sell. Yeah, to say that that's probably accurate at this point in time. Yeah. <laughs> Which is cool. Yeah, I think most people who are, um, you know, still still very interested in instant film uh, are, are well aware of it, of, of the Brooklyn Film Camera Project, yeah. Right. I mean, I just can't believe that, I mean, I guess it was like four years ago or five years ago that you were sending out emails or texts asking like which of these names for my new company do you think is yeah. best? and people were voting <laughs> yeah. like it's just it's just a very yeah. I think like being <clears throat> being kind of a um entry-level uh peer of yours at Impossible Project where we worked together and you know we were kind of we we I feel like we did a lot there but also like we're not you know in charge of anything or really like leaders in any way yeah um and yeah. then like seeing how you created um, Brooklyn Film Camera has been uh, just exciting and also just how you can kind of like carry on what you learned from one place, even if it, you know, just like take what you what you liked from that place and like kind of turn it into to something else. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, time there was incredibly valuable. I think it was good to uh, to witness, you know, the the things that worked and the things that didn't. And I think. You know, yeah, our position is, um, you know, I mean, we we sort of straddled rounds, but, you know, primarily salespeople, you know, mm-hmm. on the floor allowed us, you know, interesting access, you know, and that we were kind of able to float around the office and, you know, see what was going down and, you know, be privy to, uh, you know, certain meetings, but, but not be entirely in the thick of it. Um, right. Yeah, I was able to kind of witness the things that worked well, the things that weren't working well. Um, yeah, and kind of wrap it up into, you know, a, a better package or you know, not, I don't want to say better, but, you know, a different package. Like make it your own. I mean, I think cameras. that that is yeah, what is exciting yeah, yeah. about those experiences that, you know, sometimes like I know that when you um, we were reliving this the other day, but that when you left, when you decided to like put in your notice at Impossible and you left Impossible, like I was like, what's going on? Because we really had started at the same time and been, you know, like there for a lot of yeah, it together. And yeah. so I was like, shit, like what's going to happen now? You know, and just like letting go of like things like that in order to create something that's, you know, like bigger or, or more in line with like what you want to do or whatever it is. It's just like... Mm. Yeah, I I think that the, like it's it's really powerful to quit jobs sometimes. Um, yeah, because you yeah. you like make space for something else. Um, I mean, I think that that just like quitting is gets a bad rap, and that in general it can just be like, you know, reframed as as leaving or letting go or whatever it is in order to allow for something else to to happen when you trust your own sort of abilities or instincts. Yeah, 
Sure. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, yeah. I think that's something that, um, you know, us millennials <laughs> still, have trouble, <laughs> still have trouble identifying as a millennial, but technically, I guess we are. Um, I think that's something that, you know, our generation, though, nonetheless, is getting a lot more comfortable with, <laughs> you know, as work is fairly transient and, uh, you know, companies appear and disappear with more frequency than they used to. And um, quite honestly, I mean, just economically, it's, uh, you know, pretty difficult to to make things work these days. So it's pretty common to kind of hop around. Yeah, have more um, than one job, all of it. Yeah, oh yeah. Right. Um, and so I think I, I'm interested also in sort of how working so much, I mean, Brooklyn Film Camera works with like, you know, medium format and and 35 mm. millimeter and all that, all those types of cameras as well. But just like how working at Impossible um, and 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 now creating Brooklyn Film Camera, all of that, like what has that added to your sense of like what photography means to you or what value you see in the medium? Just a That's light a question, question, you know, yeah. just like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One thing I'll say is that I love – I really enjoy doing this because it's you're witnessing so many people on a personal level coming to the store, you know, holding these machines that they haven't held in years or, or for the first time in their life. You know, a lot, a big, big part of our clientele is like very young people, you know, teenagers and early 20 somethings. And right. This is the first time they're ever seeing these cameras. Um, and, you know, many of the cameras we sell are upwards of, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. And um, these these machines still have incredible magic to them, both in their physical form and, and their function. There's and, nothing sexier um, than an SX-70 that's like in proper oh, condition. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just popping it open, cameras. sliding it closed. <laughs> so yeah, slick. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's fun, you know, it's, it makes me appreciate um the joy that photography brings to the world and to people you know people um people come here and they they feel happy you know and they feel uh surprised you know it's it's um it's a lot of fun to guide people through that experience um and to see the happiness it really brings to the world um so that that's something that never gets old and that's something that um you know, I guess I kind of knew, but that I, I now just really, really feel on a visceral level from doing this every day. Um, it feels good. You know, we, we are bringers of joy. <laughs> That's one thing the Brooklyn Film Camera does for the world. <laughs> and that, that makes me feel really nice. You know? Yeah, I it's so interesting because I think um, instant film, I'm, I'm not sure if it's like, uh, more so than other other sort of mediums of photography, but there are a lot of like hobbyists around instant mm -hmm. film using it, and I just I feel like photography in general is a medium of art, a medium of communication that once you take it seriously, like things just get more serious. Like there's just it there's mm -hmm. it becomes very heavy, just like you know, just like the history of photography and photography as this tool of representation. Um, mm. And photography as probably the the um, I mean definitely the most prevalent way that we like learn visually about things and that we trust to teach us um, yeah. and that trust yeah, yeah. of course can often be um, 
misguided. So, sure. um, yeah, I mean, just like the last podcast I did was really just diving into National Geographic and the their problematic history with representation mm-hmm. and or misrepresentation, I should say, and um, all of that. And it's just like, but there is so much joy in just like the click, like the opening and closing of the shutter, like hearing that sound and like watching, especially, you know, with instant film, like something just be come out of the camera that you get to hold and like sort of see come to life and and just that excitement sure. ar- around the actual equipment being so having this kind of magic to it and I know that leaving impossible or and 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 then because I was no longer an employee and had as much access slash like discounts to film like right. it became like instant film kind of and I and I sort of you know moved apart from each other um and it and it also just like sort of coincided with me also like just learning more about about what photography meant to me by by studying it in graduate school and so I'm just thinking like how like that those things like exist side by side like all within this one medium like that sort of simple like very just reaction based like oh my god and also like this demand to like take it very seriously and be careful with it yeah yeah well I, I yeah I mean I see that now more than ever with the uh the uprisings that are happening yes absolutely um you know there's just a tremendous amount of photographers out in the streets making incredible work of what's going on um and actually I ran into I was out last night there's a you know, I guess this, this recording is happening at a very particular yes, time. Yes, please. I, air, but I, I want it. I want of, to know what's happening in New York. More about yeah, it. Yeah. So, so as of July first, um, there is a protest movement that has taken City Hall. So there's, they've fully taken City Hall Park. It's an autonomous zone. Um, it is barricaded off on all corners. Uh, it's a police-free zone. There's militant protesters, you know, holding the space. Um, it is wild. I spent all night there last night. I left it around three in the morning. Wow. Um, but yeah, in the span of, uh, you know, yesterday, I saw many people that I knew um, from Brooklyn Film Camera out shooting film. And um, some of their work is just so amazing. It's like, I mean, just wild stuff, historic stuff. You know, this is this is imagery that will, you know, be looked at decades from now, right. generations from now. Um and that just makes my heart feel good. Um, and yeah, you know, there's a whole range of, I mean, I guess just what you're speaking of, I feel like it's, it, you know, it's like many other art forms, right? It's like, you know, you can watch, uh, you know, a film that's silly and fun, right? And just has no substance to it, but you can enjoy it. Um, or you can watch, you know, a really deep, you know, drama and something that moves you and makes you cry and think about life. and um, and photography is no different, you know, there, there's so many ways to access it. And um, I think they're all worth it, you know, mm-hmm. and there's 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 a starting place, you know, you kind of come into photography and this is, you know, similar, I think, no matter your, you know, level of artistic prowess, but you'll generally enter and you'll, you'll have fun with it, right? It's like you're kind of figuring it out and you take pictures of friends and take some snapshots. You're like, some oh, flowers so cool. with shallowed up the fields. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. And then you begin to go, wait a second, this is like a powerful medium I'm in control of here. And how do I want to use this? You know, what, what are my, what are my abilities? How can I stretch my abilities? Um, 
And that's when it gets really exciting, you know, when you when you start to really get a grasp on it like that and you begin to take your work seriously. Um, that's when it can get really deep. Um, and it's fun guiding people through those steps too. You know, it's fun seeing people we've sold cameras to mature and, you know, see their work progress and become some really heartfelt stuff, some really powerful storytelling stuff, you know? Um, so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, I think I, I, yeah, I just, I, I feel both of those feelings all the time, just like the normal sort of, um, excitement that comes still from making, and an image, even if that image is on my phone, like it's still exciting to make a nice image. Um, but of course, oh, like yeah, yeah. that's totally heightened when when it's something that you get to to hold. Um, and of course, like you know, the stereotypical thing to say is like, you know, in the darkroom process, watching the image come through the developer, like all of that. You know, it's just like, oh no, it's but so that shit true, is so though. real. Like <laughs> it's, it's so, so real. Though. Like it, it's it's not it's not an exaggeration. Like it is absolutely magic, and this like rush that um that that you get that uh I I don't I'm not sure like how that you know I think that things appear in other art mediums, but but not in that same exact way. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're also speaking to like the physical realm, which yeah. is, which is so important, you know, and there's, there seems to be this, um, there seems to be this illusion that, you know, everything is digital now. And it's like, come on guys, like get with it. Everything's digital and it will only be digital forever. <laughs> you know, and it's, and I actually, I've taken to embracing this theory that, you know, digital is the fad actually you know it's not analog's not the fad you know because i feel inevitably when i get you know interviewed about brooklyn film camera or you know people are curious about it they'll mm. ask that question you know they'll say like well okay but is this just a fad like is film just a fad and it'll kind of fade away and you know my answer to that is like well i'm not entirely sure you know maybe i mean one problem just logistically that we're running into um is that film cameras are aging and with age comes breakdown. Sure. And so just by sheer entropy, there will be less cameras moving forward that are even usable. I mean, lucky for us, you know, there was a time in very recent history in which there was not digital photography. So there are millions and millions, hundreds of millions of film cameras in the world. So there's no shortage. Right. But Decades from now, that could be a problem if there's not new film cameras being made. But that's neither here nor there. But the the, the point is, um, I actually wholeheartedly believe that, you know, digital is kind of a fad. I think it's a fad to say that this is all there will be. We will just interface with digital things. We will listen to only digital music. We will create only digital art. Um, we will exist uh, through these, you know, digital personifications of ourselves through Facebook and Instagram. And, um, I think it's becoming abundantly clear that these digital modes of being and of creating and expression aren't serving us to our fullest, you know, mm -hmm. there's an emptiness there, um, that we all feel there's a, you know, you, you can't touch digital, you can't smell it, you can't feel it. Um, and that's not to say that it's not good for anything. I mean, like you were just saying, I, I use my, my iPhone a lot, you know, it's my primary means of, that's my main camera, you know, it's my yeah. iPhone and, and I love it. I love the ability to quickly take a picture and, 
some of my favorite photos are made on an iPhone and, and that's great. Um, but there comes a, there's a coldness to it also. And, um, you know, a, I'm not really sure where my photos will be, you know, in 10 years, let alone 50 years, let alone when I'm well away from this earth. Um, yet I can go home to my parents' house and open, they have this chest of photos that my, my grandparents took and these prints, you know, and I can open them and hold them in my hand and look at it. You know, there's, there's no need to access any files. There's no corrupt databases or, um, and that is pretty cool. You know, there's something to that, you know, to being able to hold something and say, wow, you know, my grandma held this in her hands when she was 20 years old, you know, she, she had this on the shelf, you know, um, that's powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think the physical realm will be explored more and more um, in the coming years, just because the younger generation needs it. Um, these are really human things, you know, to, to, to touch and feel and smell. And um, I think we're going to see a lot more art and culture begin to re-embrace the analog. And, you know, we're sort of one iteration of that. Yeah, I I think that th there's just so much space for both to sort of exist and take the best from both, from what we need from both um, digital and totally. analog. And I know that I've been kind of fighting this the past maybe like year and a half. Um, since moving to Tucson, I've just been feeling like I, I want to have less uh, stuff. And, you know, like part of being um, an artist is is making, is producing. And but what does that have to look like? I mean, I think, you know, I've said this before, but like that's why I like really leaned into my podcast because it it takes up a certain amount of space and that doesn't change over time. Like I don't need to mm. buy more. I mean, until I get, you know, like my first million followers, like I don't need to or listeners, I don't need to be like um, – expanding the space that I already take up with it and the equipment that I already use. So yeah, I, I think that. that like that and, and I think also, you know, like with making certain things comes like a cost to uh just the environment, um and, mm. and stuff like that. So but but then I still have this strong desire to hold the thing, to to um have that opportunity to like, you know, hang a framed picture on a wall or or whatever it is or like put something on the fridge like our fridge is so crazy and I love like how many different sort of documents and like little yeah, bits yeah. of things like make up that space and um yeah I just think that that I'm trying to find I'm really trying to find like that place where where I sort of embrace embrace both because I don't think going too far in either direction is is productive sure yeah yeah healthy medium for sure yeah I mean, I think that it's, you know, it's, of course, when we talk about analog photography and working in the darkroom, like, it is the chemicals that, that are considered to be toxic. But then when we talk about printing, um, you know, on inkjet printers, it's like, there's so much, like, plastic and, like, just things that can't be used again um, in some ways, oh, sure, like, sure. afterwards. So it's just trying to... But, I mean, I think that that was, like, the power when I first started working for the Impossible Project, there was so much power in the fact that there are all these cameras out there, all these Polaroid cameras that are going to be useless if we don't make the film to go into the cameras. Um, yeah, and yeah. I love that idea of being like, yeah, let's not have like, let's not have all these cameras end up like in the um, 
like in a the trash can. Like let's try to uh, make them as useful as possible and as relevant yeah. as relevant as possible. Because there is like there is the stereotype of like you know the hipster with the like and then that feels like somewhat of a fad like with the analog camera or with this or with that. But like sustaining that. Um, desire like I mean I don't think I mean I think it is sustainable because it we need both yeah yeah I think of um in a way I think our camera department is almost this recycling program yeah (laughs) of course because we you know we take cameras that don't work and we make them work again and uh yeah we we, you know prevent them from potentially ending up in a landfill yeah Um, and and that feels really nice yeah, definitely. Um, that's just a a a cool a cool aspect of it that that you know we can literally talk about cameras and we can talk about film and all of that and we can also talk about what those things mean um, to our greater sort of um, mm. evolution or you know devolvement whatever it is as like yeah. as like users <laughs> as makers yeah. as people who want to I mean I also think that like there's such a I mean, it's why I have this podcast, like, it's why I loved working at Impossible, but all these things is people want to be a part of a community um, around these, like, shared interests, um, mm. and there's so, there's so much, like, sort of strength in coming together over this, you know, that, like, that adds so much to it that not only are you getting to take these photos and, and, and make art, but that you're also getting to interact with other people who are experiencing some of the same things that you're experiencing. Um, and of course, like that's harder to do when there's, I mean, like I'm in Arizona where the pandemic is like exploding, um, or COVID's exploding, but yeah, like that's right. doing that's things, right. um, in person, I mean, just like surrounding yourself with, with people who are kind of like, enjoying those same getting a rush out of those same things is like really powerful oh yeah well it's it, i mean it's critical so you know as as much as i like to believe that the film community is large um in the grand scheme of things we're not right it's a you know it's a pretty small amount of people who are still pretty diehard about this stuff um and it feels good to you know meet these people in the real world so it's it's mostly you know most of the film community exists on the internet um for good reason because you know we can find each other you know um but in a place like new york city where we've got a high density of people there's actually a lot of folks here who are you know physically in the same city and you know like the same thing so yeah we've tried to really promote and foster community a lot um for the reasons you were saying it's just it's great to get together and you know, share cameras and say, oh man, I've never seen that. Or like, you know, people are like, yeah, try it out. Here you go. And, um, so we, we've been having uh, these annual gatherings in Prospect Park called them the Great Film Photography Photo Gathering. <laughs> uh, it's kind of, like, kind of like a circus name, you know? Right. And uh, they're, they're a lot of fun. We usually get around 150, 200 people. Uh, folks come in from out of state. I mean, it's, uh, it's a real deal. And um, yeah, we just have a get together. We bring a lot of food, we bring drinks, and that's pretty much it. We'll usually have a couple giveaways and um, just an announcement or two, just kind of welcoming people. But other than that, it's just a free for all, and people wander around, mingle, make portraits, share cameras. Um, that is a lot of fun. That's something that, unfortunately, uh, this would have been our third annual, but uh, yeah. COVID 
COVID nicks that, you know, so uh, we look forward to doing one next year, though. Well, and I think that that's such an interesting thing that that COVID has really like stopped in its tracks is just um, like stopping by somewhere casually. Yeah, <laughs> um, I just yeah. feel like every time I'm leaving my house, I'm like, you know, mask, hand sanitizer, like, am I wearing pants? Like all of these yeah. things. Like, <laughs> and then it's like, it just feels like there's no like, oh, I'm just going to pop over here. And I mean, like, I think that that yeah. happens more in New York City than in um like places we're driving, like I think people, when you're walking around, I felt when we worked at Impossible that people like stopped by just to be like, what's what's new here? Like some people were really like seeking it out for their first time and, and had yeah. to like work for that. And other people, just like the regulars would just like come in to say hi, you know, and maybe buy a pack yeah, of film, but yeah, just to like see what yeah. was going on. It was like this gathering place. And yeah. I, I'm sure that like you have maybe similar stuff going on at um, Brooklyn film camera even though it's a little bit smaller it's still like or a lot smaller but it's still like a it's like a point that you can you know if you're like oh I'm nearby this I can just stop by like that's such a lovely thing and oh, yeah. I miss it yeah, about happens, New York City constantly and um I just uh it's also just like with the pandemic like I'm just so much more rigid as far as like where am I going who's there what are they mm. doing you know like um yeah. indoor, for indoors um so yeah. Yeah, for, for, for a while, actually, we were um, really taking seriously the the idea of expanding and becoming a ground level, full on, like larger retail store. Um, and one of these possibilities was to have it also be a coffee shop. Yeah. And have this kind of lounge area with a couple couches and, you know, a library, photography library. And, um, and I still fantasize about that sometimes <laughs> although uh i don't i don't think that's uh, really in the cards for us <laughs> maybe just not future. right now <laughs> yeah maybe just not right now but um Absolutely. yeah that was uh, definitely a, an amazing vision yeah and and i think um there's i think that right now especially um we're all thinking about like where we're spending our money um mm-hmm. in a really sort of careful way careful not in the sense of like um being scared but just like doing things like doing it with care Mm. um and i just like like you know when you at at brooklyn film camera when you guys started like developing film as well um as you know fixing the camera selling the cameras like having all these other things that it's just it's like so nice to spend your money with a small business where you kind of like are familiar with the people that work there I feel like that oh, yeah, has, like, yeah. so, I mean, you know, of course, like, shop local and all of that, but just this idea that, like, there's there's faces at this place where you can, and you can support and you can get what you need, rather than, you know, like, B&H has its own magic, but, like, that place <laughs> is, is also a little bit soulless sometimes, like, as far as, like, how it operates as this, like, huge, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, just, like, factory, yeah. f- place that feels like you are... A factory worker when you go in there you know it's just like so all-encompassing um oh yeah not 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 to mention their labor practices i mean yeah terrible history of exploitative labor yeah um and, and like a number of other um i don't know about adorama and um uh k-e-k-e-h or other like big, uh, k-n-m k-n-m uh other Sort of, I mean, they're not as big as B and H, um, but yeah, I just like love this idea of just um, like sort of 
being really familiar with the people that work at a place and they that's like that's as far as it goes like there's there's you know what i'm saying like there's not something i don't know that's just yeah good. yeah 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 community camera shop yeah there's um right. you know there's five employees at brooklyn film camera we're um we're good we're good people i think for the most part um yeah and yeah it's it, it, it I, I agree i mean I, I i try to support small business as much as possible um and that's a really important thing that i think we all need to be thinking about you know is like where our money is being spent yeah um it's becoming very easy to just you know look for the cheapest possible thing online and order it uh, mainly through Amazon.com. I don't know if you've heard about this website. How dare you really throw Amazon under the bus? Um, <laughs> yeah. Those do-gooders. But, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, retail is is really, really, uh, you know, struggling under the the power of Amazon and and these other like large retailers. Um, and it's important to, I think, all of us, uh, you know, when we put on our consumer hats and, you know, decide to buy something to, to shop ethically, you know, there, there's a high cost of low price often. Um, and that cost comes at the, you know, expense of those working for the company. Right. Um, you know, just speaking to Amazon directly. I mean, their warehouse workers are paid minimum wage. Um, they're often on food stamps and governmental assistance. Um, Getting COVID, Jeff- I mean... Yeah, 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 yeah. Meanwhile, Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world by leaps and bounds, um, just totally exploiting his workforce. Um, and, you know, just because you can save three bucks or five bucks or 10 bucks by buying something on Amazon doesn't mean you should, you know, and I think that these are, there has to be some consciousness raising in that regard, where we as consumers need to become more comfortable spending a few more bucks in order to put our money in a place where, you know, it's going to really be felt and appreciated and, uh, and distributed, um, you know, more equitably. Yeah. So yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I just think that like, that's something that, that we can do like constantly, like every time oh, you yeah. buy something, that's a way of, of, um, not like voting in a traditional sense, but saying like, this is what I want to have in the world versus this. Like this is the, yeah. this is like the, the philosophy, the concept, whatever it is that's like behind something huge like Amazon and some like a small versus a small local business. We're getting to decide what we think is, has, has more value and, and matters. And so I think that like those little decisions, if, if, if many people take notice of, of where they're putting their energy and their money and all of that, like that is, that is its own sort of like quiet, like revolutionary act. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of revolutionary acts, can we talk about the Illuminator, please? Oh yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, so I participate. So first, you describe what the Illuminator does, and yeah, please go ahead. And also, what I've I've seen some images you put up recently of stuff they've been doing at City Hall. Yeah. 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 So the Illuminator is a radical projection art project. So um, we were founded in 2011. Um, We're born of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And um, we're a collective of, I think, 11 people now. It's grown a bit. Um, And we do large scale projection on buildings and urban surfaces throughout New York City and 
and beyond. You know, mm-hmm. we've done, we've actually traveled the world with this project. Um, but you know, most of the most of the work we're doing is in our backyard, the backyard of New York City. Um, and we, there's a lot to say about it. I'm trying to think of how to frame it. I mean, initially, it was sort of just a propaganda arm for the Occupy movement. So our message was pretty simple. It was just that of the 99%. Mm-hmm. We, we call it the bat signal. And it was the 99% in a circle. Um, and it, you know, kind of kind of looked like the bat symbol. It was this strong iconography that we would we would uh, blast on buildings. And we would do it mobily. So we have a van that has been modified and has a, um, a hatch in the top of it. And we have um, our we can mount our projector on this periscoping arm so we can actually raise it out of the top of the van and kind of aim it around while we're driving. So usually there's a three-person team, there's a driver, uh, there's someone running tech. So there's someone on a laptop, you know, um, creating imagery and, and VJing the imagery. And then there's a gunner. So the gunner is the person who holds the projector and is aiming it around, you know. Um, so in the beginning there, uh, you know, it was pretty simple. We were, we were trying to keep the movement um, visible and relevant. And part of that strategy was just to make it highly visible in the public eye. So we yeah. would drive around town and just beam the bat signal. And, you know, if you were a person on the sidewalk, you would see it and go, whoa, it's Occupy. What are they doing? Where are they? Mm-hmm. They're everywhere. <laughs> um, and, and that was the idea, you know, it's just to, to create this, um, just to keep the movement ever present in sort of the visual consciousness of New York City. Um, and then, you know, when Occupy dissolved, uh, we became a little more focused. You know, we started working with campaigns, uh, local groups who were, you know, focused on making certain things happen. You know, we would we would uh, team up with them. And uh, we also found a way to make it sustainable. So during Occupy, we were funded. And this is a whole, <laughs> a whole long insane story but um i'll make it short so we were actually funded by ben cohen uh, otherwise known as ben from ben and jerry's ice cream so he he gave us startup capital <laughs> yeah he gave us startup capital to you know acquire the projector and the lenses and, yeah. and even the van you know um and then we had a falling out with ben actually that was got pretty ugly um and this largely had to do with his discomfort with some of the anti-capitalist messaging we were we were did, helping amplify. Did he not know that um, that was uh, might happen? Well, yeah, that, and that's kind of yeah, that that's what's a little frustrating about it because you know when you're funding a horizontal movement, um, you you lose control. You know, it's it's kind of not up to you, right? There's decisions being made that are that are not top down and and he had he had some trouble with that he was okay with that to some extent but then it it began getting a little uncomfortable for him um there was one incident in which uh we projected on on um the governor's personal apartment and actually one of our members was detained by um by the terrorist task force Uh, they didn't know what was going on Wow. And uh, he was he was detained and held for 48 hours. What did you project? And, um, this is on Andrew Cuomo's apartment. Yes. Yeah. And um, I forget, actually, what we were projecting. We were urging him to, to support the movement mm-hmm. um, in some capacity. I forget what the messaging was. 
But uh, yeah, one of our guys was arrested, spent 48 hours in the can, and they impounded the van and the equipment, which we were able to get back uh, after a few weeks. But that, that really freaked him out. Um, I guess he got a he got a phone call from the cops because uh, they they looked up the registration of the vehicle and he kind of he kind of freaked. Um, that was the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Um, and that's when our relationship with Ben began to, <laughs> to unravel a little bit. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, long story short, we we got the van back. We were able to to figure out a solution to that, and the illuminator uh, rides on to this day. Yeah. Um, in fact, we were just out last night. So. And um, yeah, so so the illuminator's been projecting images on City Hall during the the Occupy there. Yeah, yeah. So we've been uh, we've been a couple times, I guess a handful of times, um, doing a few different things. So the the main project we've been riffing is um, we wanted to do something artful and kind of. We wanted to do something kind of beautiful, I guess, because this is like, you know, this is a moment of intensity and there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of literal yelling and just, you know, like, like a lot of, just a lot of anger in people. And it's really righteous anger. It's really good anger. Um, I think anger is a really powerful emotion that we as humans often try to forget about or we try to 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 like you know dampen within ourselves but but anger is wonderful motivation often and can really help change occur so I'm all about the anger Mm -hmm. and I think righteous anger propels us forward and that's a lot of what we're seeing right now at City Hall and all over the world um in these BLM you know affiliate uprisings but in any case, you know, in responding to that, we were like, okay, let's uh, we're gonna create something beautiful. How do we bring like beauty to this? Like something calming and beautiful. Um, so what we're doing is we're projecting the, the faces of people who've been killed by police um, in the in the trees above above the park, and it's it's really a, a pretty beautiful spectacle because the you know if you can imagine the, the, these really large trees um, mm-hmm. on on the the land of of um, city hall like the mayor's office and things these massive trees surrounding it and they're kind of blowing in the wind a little bit and they're kind of moving and there's these like ghostly images kind of looking down at the protest um, so it's kind of like they're we wanted to create this feeling as though they're they're with you, yeah. you know, they're, they're watching they're watching this you know remember why you're here um you know remember what you're doing this for it's for these people it's for for people that you know have experienced this this deep deep systemic injustice um and so yeah we've done that twice we did that again last night um felt really good people are really uh responding to it emotionally which is really nice really i think it's it's really moving for for a lot of people who witnessed it yeah and that feels good um and then uh yeah we've done some more literal stuff too where we've just projected on city hall some messages you know defund the police mm-hmm abolish the police um you know the the specific demand of this occupation is is to defund the police which um actually just last night the city council did but didn't do it's you know i don't know how deep we want to get into this in the podcast but it's really just some tricky some tricky math you know so they they kind of said hey guess what protest you did it 
you successfully defunded the police by a billion dollars. But in actuality, it's kind of this financial shell game that they're playing. So the police, quote unquote, have $1 billion less of an annual budget next year. Um, but there's that money has been allocated elsewhere. So for instance, um, I believe half of that, like $500 million, is now given to these school budgets in which they will now directly contract the NYPD to be in the schools instead of that budget going directly to the NYPD and then right. the understanding to open the yes. schools. So it's really they're just figuring out creative ways to flow that money back into the police yeah. without it like quote unquote being on their budget. Um, so it's really just kind of gross what happened. Um, so the protest remains and uh yeah we'll see where it goes um yeah it's funny i mean it's not funny but it's like interesting that 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 is some i mean i think that that we're seeing that in other places as well where it's like oh but we did this or like let's move this over here and then that will satisfy people to some extent and it just seems like that's not that's not gonna fly right now well this i mean this this, this is a tale as old as time right you know yeah um you know the powers that be trying to satiate unrest with with symbolism and with gestures um and it's uh yeah the time for that is over i mean we've had enough you're seeing that here too in new york i mean um you know mayor de blasio's just somehow managed to put himself in a position where he's hated by just about everyone. <laughs> yeah, this comes up a lot on my family Zoom calls. My sister's yeah. like, who likes him? No one likes him. Like, this is this is like a bi-weekly uh, event, uh, yeah. uh, conversation I'm a part of, yeah. <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's horrible. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's got no backbone. He's right. Republicans hate him, obviously. Um, you know, leftists hate him, um, which... You know, we're the reason he's there, by the way. This guy was coming to Occupy Wall Street. He was an Occupy candidate. Yeah. He, he, he gained momentum and power because he was supported by the movement. And he seems to have forgotten about that. And so, you know, the, the, you know, the left has turned their back on him. And even the liberals, you know, even the libs hate de Blasio at this sure. point. He's just, he's just totally spineless. Um, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And then and then he's and then he's trying to you know say like oh I'm with you guys I'm I'm gonna paint Black Lives Matter on some streets, and it's like okay well, that's a nice gesture but what are you what are you doing materially you yes. know how will you change the material conditions for people of color you know how will you change policing substantially, and he's offering no solutions to those questions so that's that's a problem that's a problem yeah um we're having well i mean it's of course scaled down here in um in tucson especially with um covid like rising still in arizona um but the the city hall like hung this huge black lives matter banner from the top floor of the building that faces like i10 uh, which cool. is like this big thoroughfare um and i mean it, it's really i mean it is it is like powerful to see like you know we we went to just like see it um but you know like they it wasn't strapped down so like the wind picked up half of it and like folded it over <laughs> so it didn't clearly say it it's like oh we have to think about this and also again it just like like that um our mayor, who um, I, I like, like she is, she's not, she's refusing to meet with um, Black Lives Matter leaders here in Tucson as of 
most like when I've checked most recently. So or what I've seen on social media and stuff and in the news. So it's like that the the banner um, only goes so far. And it's, um, you know, important, like you're, you're saying this, you're describing the uh, illuminator, um, the, the choices to project these images of uh, people who have been killed, like over this space so that, you know, we, people who are there can believe that, you know, the people that are looking down on them, like we're all in this together and, and we're doing, be reminded of the reason that they're doing this. Um, it's so much thought that's put into that in a way that like just some other um, ways like symbolic gestures can feel really like flat or empty in, in mm. you know, or not artful. Um, so I think they could well, think about that. Yeah, there's a difference too with like who who's delivering Absolutely, these, of course. these messages or these symbols, you know. And if they're coming from places of power, we should inherently be skeptical. It's like, right. well, why are you doing this? Especially if they're, you know, in, in, um, in terms of actual power, not, not assisting, you know, it's one, it's one thing to paint a street, you know, black lives matter while you're also changing legislation to of show course, that black course. lives matter. But when you're not, and you're just doing symbolic stuff, it's like the ultimate fuck you to the movement, you know, it's, um, and that's, that's right. a, little, a little ugly. Yeah, and I mean, I think that it seems that that is being called out in this really direct way, like um, really aggressively right now, which I think mm. um, will will keep whatever keep the the people that do have the power kind of like they're not able to to sit back. Um, they have to keep responding, yeah. uh, which is really um, which is great. I also want to recognize what you said about anger and like thinking that anger is good and that I think that anger is a lot of times, especially within um, the news, is associated with uh, destruction. And it really doesn't have to be. Um, and those two things are like conflated so often that if you're angry, this is what you do. You you break a window, you do this, you do that. But it's like it can also be right. that you project images of people that have been killed on onto these trees like that is also a way of expressing anger um yeah and yeah, that, yeah. that just i think that like the the language that we use and and how we um i mean i think that you know it's important to be to be careful with with what language we're using but it's also like um just being particular about the words that we're putting together and where and how we're delivering them and that um, anger can take many forms, some of which are are productive. Oh, yeah. And there's also, yeah, speaking of, you know, I mean, returning to what you're saying a little bit earlier about, you know, anger and, and violence, um, I think that's a really important thing to linger on and that, because this is often a tactic that the mainstream media as well as the government uses to invalidate protest, as they say, oh, well, it's violent, and uh, therefore it is bad. Um, and there's a big difference between, you know, property destruction and violence. Mm -hmm. So violence is physically hurting people, <laughs> you know. Property destruction is not violence. If no one's getting hurt, there's some windows getting smashed, you know, there's some looting occurring. That's not violence. That's property destruction. There's a very clear difference there. Um, oh. You know, businesses are insured, you know, that it's oftentimes these things don't even affect them. Uh, it's you know, it's got insurance to handle it. Um, and that's not to say that it's OK. I'm not saying it's, it's always OK. But um, I do think it's very important to point out that difference. Um, 
And it's also important to notice that it seems that the state has a monopoly on violence, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are so many violences that we are inflicted upon by the state on a daily basis, right? Um, many millions of Americans don't have health care. Um, you know, they get cancer and they're going to have a medical bill that's a million dollars plus. You know, they're going to be in debt. You know, they're going to they're going to go bankrupt. They're going to lose their house. They're going to lose their assets um, just because they couldn't afford health insurance. Um, I consider that violence, you know, perpetuated by the state upon its citizens. Um, you know, in a more literal sense, I mean, and there, you know, there are many more examples than that, you know, but healthcare comes to mind. It's sure. a very clear one. I mean, redlining. I mean, so the past couple of podcasts, oh, yeah. we've like oh, gotten yeah. into so many different forms of of violence. Like, um, so, I mean, I think uh, like a literal one that we've discussed before on the pod is um, like when you build an arena or a stadium of any kind, that usually means that like some some people's homes are destroyed. Communities are destroyed yes. in order to have yes. a place for that city's sports team to play. So that, even though that is destruction on uh, property, it is like inherently, it is also a form of like state violence. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just like that word, I think actually like it needs to be ap- applied appropriately, but also like we we need to use it when when it fits like we need to say that redlining is violence yeah yeah i i I totally agree with you um and yeah we just kind of cede that to the state it's like okay well you know qualified immunity for instance right like police officers are not subject to liability oftentimes for the things they do Mm -hmm. while they're on the job and it's like what universe are we living in in which a cop can just kill someone with impunity. And then they're like, oh, well, I was on the job. I made a mistake, but, you know, whatever. Um, And then they just get kind of shuffled around and this little shell game will get transferred to a different department or something. And it's, you know, it's considered kosher. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just insane. It's crazy Um, because do do they want to live in a, don't, don't, like besides their own individual experience, don't, wouldn't they also want to live in a place that people are held accountable for killing other people? Like, I mean, it's just, that's, that's a big disconnect for me. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It, you know, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. I think sure. um, these things get, you know, incredibly complicated. I mean, there's, you know, <laughs> the infinite arguments of like, well, there's good ones and bad ones and there's this and there's that. Um you know, as far as my perspective goes, my personal perspective on this goes, um, you know, if you are choosing to be a police officer, which is a choice, um, this whole blue lives matter thing is complete nonsense. You're not born a cop, you know, you're born black. <laughs> you can't yeah. take your skin off, but guess what? You can take your uniform off and just get another job. Um, so, you know, that's completely a ridiculous, you know, uh, argument to make um but yeah i mean if you're a police officer you're an agent of the state and you are enforcing laws that are both ethical and non-ethical and you know by doing that you are inherently an unethical actor um you know if you were a cop in the 1960s where segregation was still happening in certain parts of america um even if you were a quote-unquote good cop 
guess what? You were still going to your job and occasionally being told, hey, I need you to go to this diner and kick some black people out. And you have to do it. And, um, you know, I think that's wrong. And I think that, I think, and this is, you know, maybe a rather extreme position, but that I think anyone who chooses to be a police officer is a non-ethical human being. As long as there are laws that are unethical that you are committing to serving, you know, I don't have respect for you. And um, I think that a lot of the anger we're seeing right now towards police is incredibly justified because even if you're a quote unquote good cop, guess what? You're marching lockstep with these other guys and you are beating protesters. You are arresting protesters. Um, You are an agent, a free agent. You're a human with individual choice who has chosen to not walk away from this. And um, yeah, I think a lot of this anger towards police is incredibly justified right now. And I'm happy to see it becoming mainstream. There could be such a better way to go about protecting each other. Uh, And in order to do that, um, I've just been on the podcast. Also, I've been talking a lot about like undoing. Because this one artist, mm. like, that's at the center of his work is that, like, he makes these tapestries. I had him on recently, and he, like, he picks them apart. He, like, undoes the the tapestry with the image on it. Mm. And it's just so much about, like, undoing before we can do properly. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, is, of course, a part of systemic racism and is also a part of, like, the forces of systemic racism or the, fo- the forces that most overtly enact systemic racism. And so mm. one of those is the police. Oh, yeah. Um, Man, I love that we've just wormholed down from you know, know. Like, talking about uh, film photography. Like, yeah. Fuck the police. We've Edwin Land is our hero and also fuck the police. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's so interesting because, like, I am white, of course. Um, and I, like, whenever I see a cop car on our street i'm like oh fuck like i mean not not for myself but just in general like cops do not bring a sense of comfort to me even when i have um had them in my house i'm wondering when the last time that was but like or you know anywhere that i lived like i just don't feel it doesn't feel that's not not a good feeling even though that that within the system that uh, protect and serve they are designed to protect and serve me to a certain extent you know whatever it is like versus you know, as they came out of the tradition of like um, of kind of policing uh, black people historically. Yeah. So. Yeah. So if I'm if I am some like I still have this, you know, the other a couple. Um, I think I mentioned this to you when we talked, but like a couple weeks ago, this guy was kind of like following me around uh, the neighborhood. Um, yeah. While I was walking and it. just like kind of talking to me out of his car and it made me really uncomfortable. And I also I mean. I just don't, I still don't want to call the police. Like, it's just, there's something that it just, um, it feels very, um, it just doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. It feels uh, really unnerving. And, you know, I ended up calling the non-emergency police just to let them know in case anyone else called something in. And then the next day they called me back and they shamed, they were like, you should have just called the actual police. Like, it's just like, I... Uh, it's just um, it's just a really I just don't see how they how they sort of how 
who feels good about what they do. It, I mean, some, I can imagine that some people do, but it's just like that is just not working for for many people in many ways. Well, yeah, I mean, and that that's that's the problem too is that the cops just have too much on their plates. You know, um, right. they're, they're they're being asked to do too much. Um, it makes no sense that you know if if there's if someone's having a mental health breakdown, for instance, that you should call the police. But that's currently really the only recourse. You call 911. You know, if somebody's, you know, naked in the streets, you know, freaking out and, right. you know, potentially getting violent, you know, the only thing, you know, we're instructed to do is call 911. Um, and then a cop's going to show up with a gun and this person may not be responsive to that. You know, they may not even know what's going on. And that's how people die and might get shot. Um, and in reality, the person who should show up to that would be, you know, a mental health professional, someone who's very comfortable, you know, calming people like this down and understanding de-escalation techniques. Absolutely. Um, same thing with domestic disputes. You know, there should not be a cop coming to your house with a gun to help with the domestic dispute. There should be a counselor showing up. Um, the list goes on and on. Yeah. But, um, police simply can't handle all this stuff and they shouldn't. And I think we're even um, so saying that's... that, like, the gun is is a problem but isn't the problem because when they are willing to use other means, like, in order to yeah. to, con- to control, to um, to, to kill. Uh, so, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, this guy, this video was just released by the Tucson Police Department just um, last week. This guy, um, Carlos Adrian Ingram Lopez, was having – he was – he was on a drug and he was having some awful reaction and his grandmother called the police and the police showed up and they, the, the way that they like subdued him, like kept him from breathing and he died in their custody. And this video was just released. This is back in April. And so there's been like this big uproar here. Like the officers have resigned, of course, with their, um, their, what is it called? The thing that they get, um, pensions with their pensions because they resigned. And then like the, the police chief offered it. And, you know, like this is a police department that has adopted the um, like the eight can't wait, you know, the uh, uh, all of that. Like they've they've tried to adhere to these other um, these policies that that would, uh, if if done properly, could reduce police violence. And, and, and um, still we were were uh, seeing that they covered this up and then, you know, the it's just all fucked. So, anyways, uh, yeah. yeah, really need to undo and redo um, before things can can be better. And also, just this idea that I mean, I'm scared of the guns, and I'm I mean, the guns are unnerving, and they're 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 just a threat constantly, even if they're not in anyone's hands. But it's also just like they're crushing people. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, they don't need, don't need a gun to kill. No, we, no, no. <laughs> I also, I it's really important to me that we just touch on this um, this post that you had put up on the Brooklyn Film Camera um, account last week. Oh, sure. Um, that I just wanted to um, talk about a little bit because it's about sort of the inherent how system systemic racism has played out in the development of. A film and photography and I think that mm, like yeah we see that we're hearing about and having known before that like you know that that often works with like who's the photographer that gets asked to to shoot 
for Vogue or for another big publication yeah. or, you know, like yeah. how who's getting like the power to tell the story. Um, so I think that, that that is like a more sort of like overt form of how how racism works within the world of photography is like who's getting to who's getting the platform um, and who's getting the money. But also this post that you you had shared was about sort of how how it had worked with like film, the development of film, like picking up certain skin tones in a more accurate way than others and, and, and lighting and things like that. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Yeah, the digest, um, for those who haven't seen the post we made, um, if you haven't, follow us on Instagram yeah. at <laughs> Brooklyn Film Camera. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll just I'll just explain it a little bit. Um, so the story goes like this: basically, um, in the 1950s, the photographic industry, which was at the time dominated by Kodak, um, started making um, things called Shirley cards, and these were cards that had a picture of a woman, a, a white woman, um, evidently named Shirley, and uh, a bunch of swatches of color. And the, the main pigments used on the card were, you know, of white skin, these kind of pink pigments. And the idea is that this is what would be used to make the film better. So that the company was constantly testing their film and comparing it with this card um, in order to, to, to make these tones better and better and better. And because of that, uh, photography, color photography specifically, um, up until the 70s was completely engineered for white people. Um, changes in the chemistry did not begin until the 1970s, and it only happened because chocolate and furniture companies, let me say that again because it's insane, yep. it only happened because chocolate companies and furniture companies began complaining that their products weren't accurately rendering in their advertisements. And so only then did the, you know, did Kodak and other companies begin to re-engineer their film to provide adequate detail in darker tones and tones that were specifically black and brown, um, literally. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the interesting takeaway of that is that it was not the misrepresentation or exclusion of people of color that prompted this change. It was the demand of capitalism, right? Right. Um, which is pretty wild. And uh, if you look at images from that era, you'll see it plain as day. It's like, you know, black people are frequently rendered um, with very little detail in their skin. If you look at black faces in photography from, you know, the 1960s and previous, you'll see very little detail. It's very sometimes difficult to make out their facial features. Um, meanwhile, white skin looks really beautiful. And it's interesting to analyze these things. I don't think it's, you know, the point of talking about that is not to say, well, Kodak is a racist company, you know, because because they're not, you know, they're they're they were a corporation as they are now, whose main goal is to make. And so they were, you know, they were creating a product for the main consumer base, which at the time was white people. And that's Maine's our main consumer base. Um, and I don't know, it just gets very complicated because it's, you know, in some way they're almost quote unquote, not to blame for that, right? If their main intention is just to make money, 
Well, they were doing that as efficiently as they knew how. But that really brings you, if you if you think about that, if you linger there for a little longer, then you begin to ask the questions like, well, okay. Um, so should it be that the dominant race is always kind of like the ones receiving the products that we need? And, um, you know, there's just a whole lot of wormholes that brings you down and it really all leads to white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and many of the ways the white supremacy is upheld is, is so subtle. It's like you, you wouldn't even notice it. You band-aids, know? band-aids. Band-aids, yeah. And it's, it's also just wild that, you know, for generations, black people literally couldn't see themselves as well in pictures and they didn't look good. You know, they didn't look good. And meanwhile, white people look great. And, you know, what does that do to the ego? What does that, what does that do to the, to the will of, 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 of black people? You know, how does that make them feel? How does it make their children feel? How does it make that, you know, I mean, it's a really incredible stuff. Um, and of course, less black models were cast, right? Because they wouldn't look as good on film. Um, and, you know, I mean, for other reasons as well, but um, it's just, I think it's important for us to always look at these things that seem invisible and then notice like, wow, like what is that actually, how, what kind of impact is that actually happening, you know, you know, having on our collective consciousness? Yes. And this idea of, I think the, the easy reaction is fuck Kodak or Kodak was uh, racist, which Kodak was. Uh, But that's not going to solve this like larger problem of being like, this is connected to so many other things. And that's Mm. why when I saw your post, I was like, this is, this is like about what you do. I mean, this is like in your like wheelhouse of like knowledge, like professionally around film and cameras. And here's this iteration of systemic racism and white supremacy. Like, and, and, we have that for every, um, for every sort of point of knowledge or whatever it is, like for every sort of um, job yeah, or career industry, or vocation or industry. Path. Yes, yeah. industry is the yeah. word I was looking for. So it's just that that like really spoke. I mean, it, it was really informative about specifically film, photography, representation, all of that. But then it just made me think like, gosh, there's a version of this for so many other things. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, and some of them we know, and some of them I'm sure like are are, are so embedded in things that's it's harder to like suss them out. Mm. But it's just this idea of like taking on this system can seem so much more intimidating than like getting someone fired or um, like boycotting a company. And of course, that can have real systemic change. Um, but but really, like, we're dealing with something that's so much bigger than, like, one individual or one, like, entity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the tentacles of white supremacy have, you know, fully wound themselves into the fabric of American culture since the beginning. Um, yeah. And it's, it's never left, you know. And we only, I, I'm a firm believer that we only begin to unravel that when we begin to, you know, see it. You've got to see it and you've got to acknowledge yes. it. Um, and that, that allows paths to emerge. Um, and that's one thing that our country just has not done. You know, it's, it's horrible, actually. I mean, there's been very little apology made. Um, and 
even just acknowledgement of like the pain caused to so many millions of African Americans and Native people, um, it's terrible, and we need to change that. Um, you know, I look at Germany, for instance, as a great example of a country that has wholeheartedly owned its atrocities. I mean, World War II was a blink of an eye ago, really. And there are, guess what? There are monuments all over Germany just apologizing for what happened. Yeah. Say, we are so sorry. Uh, we remember what we did and we will not do it again, you know? And um, that's powerful. You know, Nazi symbols are banned from Germany. You simply cannot fly a flag. You cannot wear a shirt. You will go to jail. Um, you know, and that's that's powerful, actually, acknowledging the wrong you've done and saying, I will not do this again is important. And we seem to have trouble doing that as as a country, which is really disturbing. Um, and anyway, yeah, I think it's up to it's up to us, you know, to, to step up and, and yeah. begin to see those truths um, and to acknowledge it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think just presenting like the way that you presented that information, um, not tied to any other like movement or it like as far as, oh, like because of this happened with Kodak, we have to like vote a certain way or something like that to like make up for just this idea that if we just look at the facts, when you just lay it out in such a like sort of um, uh, like straightforward way it's like this is this is this is not an opinion this is just this is just like our history and i feel like yeah, that's when yeah. we can really like get at the thi things like when we see them in these kind of um spaces that that just present this history as it was and it's crazy yeah, thinking about yeah. like like you know south africa having a truth and reconciliation um sort of hearing about what had happened during apartheid and, and people who had people who had lost family loved ones like all the stuff being able to sort of like hold accountable the people that did that to a certain extent and it's mm. just like i think that the lack of like we need like 10 or 20 or 30 or like 50 truth and reconciliation uh Yes. because just everything continues to build so like we it's not like w there's so much to atone for and to acknowledge and to to undo and redo and whatever it is that like it, it it we we are at a point where it's like this complete sort of overhaul rather than it being like let's address this one issue yeah oh yeah like big yeah big agreement in that regard yeah um I want to I kind of want to read the end of your post if I can. Oh sure, yeah. Cuz it was um let me pull it up. Okay. So this is after you've stated this situation with what had happened with like the film and and um all of that. So white supremacy comes in many forms. We encourage all image makers and creatives to keep this in mind. When creating, challenging yourself to decenter the colonial norms of beauty and ha that have become so standardized within American culture throughout our lives. Beauty is within us all and can be found with a multitude of skin tones and a multitude of body shapes and sizes. Celebrate and explore this. Kyle, that was that's that that was the that's the way to 
that was really well written. Oh, thank you. Came from the heart, you know, some real stuff. Yeah, it's and it's 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 fact and it's truth, and I think that it's important uh, to address that specifically with people who are um, involved in making, involved in uh, storytelling, and um, especially around visuals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's how we create a. It's a big part of cultural reproduction, and we need to we need to reimagine it and change it. Yeah. So thanks for for doing that and pushing that forward. Oh yeah. And I love you. <laughs> and I love you too. It's been so great to chat. Yeah, this has been great. This is the longest we've chatted in in years. I, I, I know. We got to change that. Absolutely. Um. Okay. So, stay safe. Whatever you're doing. Um, <laughs> Whether it's grocery shopping or when you're at um, the City Hall uh, yeah. Autonomous Zone. Um, yeah. And yeah, just take care of yourself. Oh, thanks, Abby. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, we'll talk soon. I'll keep you uh, posted. And um, yeah, just take care of yourself. All right, you too. Okay, bye, Cass. Bye.